When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to Geico.com and you could save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your moves. How do you like that new Back to the Future retro instrumental intro to the show? I'm going to try to change things up a little bit. Welcome to the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. OuterLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. Today, we are going to be focusing on how to maximize your health. There's always that talk about the mind, body, spirit connection. Well, we've covered the mind We've covered the spirit. Now it's time to focus on the body. And we're going to be interviewing three phenomenal doctors. Dr. Elena George, Dr. Joe Alton, and Dr. Carl Robinson. They're all going to provide their great insight on things you can do to maximize your health. They all left live surgeries to come to do this show. And I can't tell you how thankful we are that they just did that. I'm just kidding. Coming up also, and next week, we're going to do a live show on dream analysis. It'll be a live call-in show. You can call in and have your dreams get analyzed. Following that, we're going to do a show about financial abundance. And then coming uh, the next couple of weeks, we're going to do a whole show focusing on death. I mean, could you get more excited about that? So before we begin, let us focus tonight on our show on how to maximize your health. Joining us now is Dr. Elena George board-certified otolaryngologist. She's graduated from Princeton with a degree in biology. She's one of the nation's top doctors, and you can learn more about her by going to her website at drelenageorge.com. Dr. Elena George, thank you so much for being with us, and welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Dr. George, you've been a doctor for so many years, and right now, the way the world is, it would appear that there's a lot more government involvement in our very basic healthcare system. For those who do not wish to engage in this type of activity, what are some of the things that a person can do to maximize their health? Five ways that they can ensure that they don't go to the doctor as often as they are doing right now with the type of current lifestyle that is common threat throughout the United States. I think it's very important that people really pay attention to what they're eating. I mean, it's an, an old adage, you are what you eat, and it's actually true. Um, there is really an epidemic of deficiencies, nutritional deficiencies, throughout the world, especially in the United States, that predispose you to disease. One of them is vitamin D that is epidemic, and there's many reasons for it. Um, one of them is people don't get enough sun. I mean, they spend a lot of time indoors, whether that's work or even children playing inside, as opposed to when we were kids, I'm sure, or we were outside until the street lights came on, basically. And vitamin yeah. D is integral to health. It lowers cholesterol. It decreases inflammation. 
there was one study that said if your vitamin D level was in within normal range, it would decrease your risk of colon cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer by 70%. That is huge. And that's a small price to pay by buying a supplement or getting some sun to decrease the risk of getting sick. Wow. And when you are seeing a lot of patients and people are coming to you, do you feel that, is there one, you know, when people come to you and they're generally looking for a prescription or looking for a pill to take mm-hmm. care of a common problem, mm-hmm. is there, what is the most common solution to, uh, I'm going to say it this way, I want to rephrase the question. When people come to you and they're looking to get a treatment or, or they're seeking to take a pill to resolve a certain issue, what are some of the more natural ways to improve your health in addition to getting some more sun besides the eating? What? Oh, sure. I'm, I'm an ear, nose, and throat doctor, so I see a lot of people with sinus problems, allergy problems, reflux, acid reflux, and those are some of the top diagnoses made in the country. Um, one of the best things you can do is to get sleep, believe it or not. You know, if you actually sleep enough, your body is incredibly designed and it's self-healing. And one of the things that happens when you get good quality sleep is your immune system revs up, it resets. And that's one of the things that people have an issue with. They burn candles, they don't eat properly, they don't drink enough water, et cetera. And the immune system is very lethargic. So people get viruses, et cetera, very easily. And if you get some good quality sleep, that would go a long way to helping your body repair itself. Okay. And if you have a sedentary lifestyle and you've lived that way for a prolonged period of time, does your body adjust to that lifestyle? Is your body <laughs> is it harder for your body to rev up its immune systems, rev up its ability to heal itself because of the sedentary lifestyle? That's a kind of a complex answer, but I think the, the easiest way to say it is the more you exercise, the more you move around, the better able you are to detoxify. One of There's five ways that people remove waste from their body, toxins. One is to breathe out, to exhale. So if you exercise, you're breathing rapidly, you're removing gaseous waste, sweating, is another way. Again, working out would allow you to remove a lot of toxins to your skin. Your liver is one of the most important ways to remove chemical toxins. Your bladder, if you urinate out, that also is another important way to remove um, things like uh, potassium and that sort of thing and keep it in balance and obviously having a bowel movement. So all those things, when you exercise, your system optimizes and it literally removes waste without you working so hard. Got it. And there are, in our society today, there are common notions and ideas that if you get a flu shot or if you take a certain pill or if you take a certain supplement that everything's going to be okay. Are there some common notions like flu shots, like pills that people take or depend upon that we really don't need to take and that are really the body really does not necessarily need to heal itself that you can um, think of? Say that one more time for me. Sure. In our society today, there are common thoughts that everyone needs to take a flu shot, and there are common thoughts that everyone needs to take an antidepressant, or most people need to take a pill Mm -hmm. to take care of aspects of their body. So I think society as a whole has come to depend upon the flu shot, have come to depend depend upon aspirin, have come to depend upon certain marketed uh, pills. Are there any things that are out there that you can think of that are commonly marketed as safe for which are not safe and which the body does not necessarily need to optimize its health? 
Do we need a flu shot? Do we need aspirin? Do we need these pills to be optimal, healthy? So again, it's I'm all about choice, and I think that there's something something for everybody. It should be a very integrative approach, but it all comes down to a good foundation. So, as I said before, if your immune system, if you eat properly, if you drink enough water, if you exercise, if you sleep, those are the things that's going to help your immune system be more efficient, be more able to um, attack foreign invaders, if you want to put it that way. A flu shot, you know, I'm, I personally am not a proponent of it. I think that if you take vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc, uh, wash your hands is one of the major players in get, not getting a virus, especially in the wintertime. Staying home when you're sick so you don't infect your coworkers are ways that you can decrease the, the um, outbreaks of these diseases. Um, for those who believe in the flu shot, that's, that's great. Um, same thing goes for uh, cholesterol, high blood pressure, etc. You know, if you're overweight, losing weight is one of the major ways to get yourself off the track of going towards the, um, high blood pressure, diabetes, and obesity. But there also is some things that you can do naturally. If you take things like um, fish oil or coconut oil, those are really great natural anti-inflammatories. And first you should check with your doctor and make sure you don't have some really out of range um, lab numbers, but for those who are borderline, those who don't have a family history, I think it's really from a from a medical perspective and now an economic perspective. If you can stay healthy, that's going to give you a lot more ammunition to stay off of the pill train. <laughs> okay, and Dr. George, in your experience being a doctor, let me say this way. I mean, let me rephrase that question, Dr. George. In all of your years of practicing. Have you found that there's a certain correlation between the level and degree of a person's sickness compared to what their mood are? Do you ever notice that people who come in are either um, tend to be depressed or very sad? I'm just trying to see if there's a correlation between a person's mood and their um, the way their body is reacting. It's certainly true when people have a chronic problem, when it's unrelenting pain, unrelenting pain definitely puts people into a more um, depressive mode. And you can imagine if you wake up every morning, you have a headache or you have some sort of joint pain or something that makes you just not want to get out of bed, that will ruin your entire day. Another thing that I want to touch on is the importance of the gut, the GI tract. That is the most important organ in the body because that's where a lot of processes go on. If you don't have a, a healthy digestive tract, you don't metabolize your food properly, you, are, you create an environment where acid gets overproduced, which leads to disease, cancer, pain, aging. All of those things are tied to that. And one of the most e- the easiest things you can do is to start taking probiotics. They talk about it on, on the television a lot with these you know, processed yogurts. But I think the best way to go about it is to go and get digestive enzymes and probiotics from your health food store that are not processed, they're not related to a food, and they can directly hit the areas that need to be hit. You know, there's a lot of talk about antidepressant medicine and, you know, practically everybody, over 50% of our country is on some sort of drug at this point. But it turns out that serotonin, which is one of the, the neurotransmitters that, the, that the, the depression medicines 
try to elevate is made in the GI tract. So if your GI tract is healthy, that gives you a chance, your body a chance to make healthy amounts of serotonin, which will decrease anxiety, increase, you know, decrease your risk of getting depression. And it's amazing that, that nutrition can do wonders where you don't have to be stuck on a pill you have to take every day. And I think it's really, if you can try something like that first, make sure you eat healthy. Make sure that you, know, you eat organic. Those things will go a long way. That's absolutely fantastic. That's a really great insight. The idea that people listening right now who are depressed or worrying about taking the antidepressants focused on doing mental health exercises while all things are, at, are important. The idea that you, know, you could really attain a lot of this through health nutrition is just mm -hmm. absolutely fascinating. Are you a supporter of the supplement 5-HP? I um, think it's called 5-HTP. Yeah, yes, that's a, it's the building block for serotonin. Um, so, you know, the, all the neurotransmitters, hormones have building blocks to them. And, you know, you have to eat healthy fats, a coconut oil. You have to, if, you, if your diet is really not very good, it's like fast food and a lot of chemicals and processed foods, then think, taking things like 5-HT, if you are somewhat depressed, would actually help. Okay, and people who take coconut oil, a lot of people swear by it. I, I love mm -hmm. it. I think it's great. Did you, have you ever heard of people that take coconut oil and they'll swish it in their mouth for 20 minutes with the yeah. expectation of it? Is that what does that necessarily do? Does you swish it and what it extracts all the toxins? It's called pooling, and um, okay. it's it neutralizes bacteria. And you okay. know our mouths and our our noses, our throats have bacteria in them, and they normally are there. You just want them to be in balance. So if you have issues with dental decay, you know gingivitis, or you just want to avoid that sort of thing, in addition to your brushing. You can do that, but you have to spit it out. You cannot swallow that because it is so full of bacteria, toxins, et cetera, when you do it. Wow. And Dr. Elena George, before we let you go, can you please tell us about your upcoming book that you've written that's going to probably be a big, big bestseller? I hope so. Um, yeah. The title of the book is called Big Medicine, um, The Cost of Corporate Control and How Doctors and Patients Working Together Can Rebuild a Better System. And I wrote it because the, the state of medicine is, is really going in a direction that patients are not happy with, and I myself as a doctor extremely unhappy with. And it's doctor-patient relationship is being destroyed. Individual patient care is being removed. And we have options, doctors and patients. And first we have to do is to get the middleman, the insurance company, the government, out of the, the doctor's office and start working together again. And I've learned a lot in my 15 years of practice. And the most important thing about healthcare and cost is that the doctor and the patient, if they decide together what the treatment options are, how to keep the patient healthy, how to fix the problem, and not just medicate the symptom, that is going to go a long way towards lowering healthcare costs, improving outcomes, having people be healthier. I just think it's really wrong that people are taking more medicine paying more money, and they're sicker. There's something wrong with that paradigm, in my opinion. Yeah, it's disturbing, and I want to let our audience know that I've actually read the book, and there is so much evidence that Dr. George will point out talking about how the state is actively trying to control and actively taking steps to control and access your information. So when you go and you read the book, you're going to find it fascinating, and when you go to Dr. Elena George's website at drelanageorge.com, 
a lot of her posts are actively giving you advice to become more independent and actually you know, become more reliable and taking your health into your own hands. So there's a lot of great information you can learn from Dr. Elena George. And Dr. Elena George, it was truly an honor and a really great pleasure to have you on our show today. Thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. I look forward to doing it again. Joining us now is Dr. Joe Alton, doctor and author of many great books. One of his most recent books is the Survival Medicine Handbook, A Guide for When Help is Not on the Way. You can learn more about Dr. Joe Alton by going to his website, doomandbloom.net. And that was one of his books, Doom and Bloom. Hang on, I have that book on my shelf. It's fantastic. Dr. Alton, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It's great to be here, Ron. Okay. So we are focusing our show right now on ways that you can dramatically improve your health. And if you watch TV, most of the messages say that you've got to take this pill and that pill and get a doctor prescribed and you have all these side effects. So where's the TV going wrong? (laughs) And what are some of the most dramatic ways a person can improve their health? Well, I think TV has gone way wrong if they're telling you to take a lot of supplements or take a lot of uh, drugs, I feel very, very strongly that you can really do the best you can to stay healthy by working on your lifestyle, by working on your diet. I think that these are the best ways that you could help yourself stay on an even keel with regards to your health. Now, of course, you want to get rid of any bad habits. Smoking is bad for you, so definitely no smoking, but you want to Work on your diet mostly, I think. If you eat a diet high in fruits and vegetables, uh, whole grains, low in saturated fat, lots of antioxidants, I think that you're going to be doing a lot to help yourself and probably don't need to take any of those supplements that you see advertised all over the place on TV. Now, of course you want to... Go ahead. Of course you want to... Maintain a healthy weight for your height and age. You want to control your blood pressure. Uh, if you drink alcohol, of course, everything in moderation. So I think that's that's a good start. And, of course, you need adequate sleep. I can't tell you how much sleep plays a part in staying healthy. As, as a physician, I can tell you that I spent a long, long hours in the emergency room in the operating room as a resident and a British medical journal came out and found that medical residents that wound up getting only four hours of sleep a night, which actually would be generous for me back when I was a resident, made twice the medical errors of those residents that got seven to eight hours of sleep a night. So it's a big thing. So what does sleep do? What does sleep fundamentally do for your body? Well, sleep does a couple of things. Now, Sleep from the standpoint of uh, dreaming or rapid eye movement sleep, which is one type of sleep, actually helps recharge a number of uh, different types of neurotransmitters that you have. These are chemicals that you have in your brain that help you function. And so that's one thing. REM sleep does that. Deep sleep also regenerates your body. So this this is so important to get an adequate amount of sleep on a regular basis. If you can do this, then you are going to be ahead of the game. 
Uh, one journal, as a matter of fact, did a study, and they found that people that had gone 14 hours without sleep had the same reaction rates and same impairment of judgment as people who had an alcohol, a blood alcohol level of 0.08, which is actually the legal limit for intoxication. Okay. You know, that's really scary because earlier in my years, I used to stay up at two or three days at a time and work, so I'm, I must have sounded like somebody who just walked out of a bar in Massachusetts. Yeah, I am I am with you on that. I'll tell you that <laughs> we, I've spent 36-hour shifts in which I would catch a cat nap here and there, but I would be actually physically in somebody else's body cutting and sewing and doing all sorts of, you know, procedures, operations, some of them life-threatening that uh I did with very little sleep on board and of course I'm very lucky that uh, people turned out okay, but there are a lot of circumstances where medical errors can be made. And when you don't have enough sleep, then you are at risk. Wow. So I'll make sure that every time I go into yeah, let your surgeon know, did you get eight hours of sleep? Nope. Sorry, I can't do the, uh, <laughs> can't do the right. operation. Don't, don't operate on me today. Get a good night's sleep first. Yeah. Another question I have about sleep is, are there universal times where the body is going to be uh, more tired than usual because some people they're, they're night they're morning person some morning people some people are, are night owls i didn't know if there was one particular cycle in a 24-hour period where the body um you know generates faster or, or you know or does or operates differently well you would think that it would be a night uh, you know a sleep at night awake during the day type of thing and of course that is what we what we do naturally it's it's thought that in in ancient times that people went to sleep at night and did their activities during the day so we're not generally a nocturnal species but we're a very adaptive species and certainly there are a lot of people that work the night shift and function just fine as long as they can get enough sleep so i don't think that that's something that is a hard and fast rule that has to apply to every human that, you know, if they sleep during the day and they work at night, then they're not going to be functioning well. As long as they're used to that pattern, then that is, I think, perfectly fine. And, of course, uh, these patterns are, are things that we call good sleep hygiene. And so the idea of sleep hygiene basically adjust your behavior to maximize the amount of restful sleep that you get. So what you want to do is you want to adhere to whatever bedtime it is, whatever time you're going to go to sleep, to adhere to it on a daily basis, standard bedtime every night, for example, and wake up time every morning or vice versa if you sleep, if you work at night, uh, making your environment as comfortable as possible, avoiding things that keep you awake like nicotine, alcohol, caffeine, things like that before going to bed. Uh, you don't want to exercise just before going to bed either. You, you certainly want to exercise regularly but not before going to bed. You want to eliminate as much light as possible in the room at bedtime so that uh, you don't have any disturbances with regards to that. You want to stay away from heavy foods for about two hours, I'd say, maybe three hours before you go to sleep. That's also, I think, important. Some people also get uh, heartburn if they do that because they're laying down flat and the acid goes up the esophagus. And, of course, keep try to keep your mind clear of stressful issues at bedtime. 
Okay, I'm going to admit something to you right now. There may be other people that are out there that uh, that go through my condition, but I I love to eat at night, and I'm the person when I wake up in the middle of the night, my wife sees this faint glimmer coming from the kitchen, which is the the glaring light of the refrigerator. <laughs> and I don't know during the day, it's everything's fine, but at night, it's all of a sudden it's a Mexican fiesta, and I you know there's everyone there's no stone that gets untouched. What are the ramifications of eating late at night or eating in the middle of the night? What does that do for your body? Does your body have to work harder to replenish itself because it's focusing all its time and attention on digesting the food? Well, you know, and, that, that's one thing, absolutely. But okay. also, as especially as you get older, you'll go, you're going to find that you wind up having more uh, symptoms of acid reflux as a result of eating late at night because you have a lot of acid that's, accumulating in your stomach as your stomach's working to digest the food, and then you're laying flat. And when you lay flat, of course, then there's a higher chance for uh, that acid in your stomach to travel up the esophagus and, and give you heartburn. So that's a big issue for people, especially as they get older. And you, and you might experience that over the course of time. Now, of course, uh, in, you you sound like a very young man, and uh I think that this might not be an issue for you for quite a while, but it is something that uh, middle-aged folk will probably attest to uh, having once in a while. I won't tell you my age, but I'll tell you where I am. About five years ago, I didn't care if anyone was on my lawn. Now (laughs) I'm I'm getting really cranky about it. I don't like people going on my lawn, and I, I think in the next five years I'm going to be young. Get off my lawn. So, <laughs> you give me an idea of the window about it. Okay. Another thing um, I'd like to ask you about sleep. Some people will listen to music when they sleep or they'll listen to subconscious programming when they sleep. If they're listening to any type of sound whatsoever, no matter how sure the intentions, will that in any way, shape, or form disrupt their sleep cycle? And also disrupt their ability to ability to heal themselves. No, not not necessarily. I feel I feel that if you're used to not having any sound at night or when you're when you're sleeping, then that is going to be a big issue. However, there are people who swear by these sound machines where they have a hear a babbling brook or you hear the sound of rain softly falling or a thunderstorm uh, in the distance. And they feel that that actually helps them go to sleep. Now, there are some people that feel that this isn't good for them. But I personally know of quite a few people that regularly use this type of uh, sleep aid, if you want to call it that, and it helps them go to sleep. Now, whether they have as deep sleep as people that are sleeping in a no-sound environment, now that actually is a good question. And I don't have any hard data that tells you one way or another whether they they get as much deep sleep as people who have no uh, who who have no sound whatsoever when they sleep. Now, of course, if people if if that is an issue, then what they can do is they can go towards maybe some relaxation techniques. So, you know, let's say you you have no choice but to be sleeping in an area where there is noise in the distance or or other issues like that, then you can consider 
things like meditation, yoga, massage is, is very good. Relaxation techniques are helpful in allowing you to get sleepy and to hopefully get into a pattern where you're relaxed enough so that you can get enough sleep to to help out. Now, of course, there are other things in diet that are helpful. I want to go back to diet because I think diet is so important. There's uh, Melatonin is a substance that you'll find in a number of things. Bananas have them. Oatmeal has it. And it's excellent for sleep. Some people, it helps people that are actually naturally low in melatonin, but it is a definite sleep aid. Tryptophan is another thing that's, sleep, uh, that's a good sleep aid, and you'll find that in milk. That's why warm milk is helpful to get you to go to sleep because it has tryptophan in it. Can I just pause you for, for just one second? When you say tryptophan, is that also found in a supplement called 5-HP, which is, I think, a pretty common um, supplement that they have out? I believe so, yeah. And, okay. and some people will take these take these supplements. But, of course, if you can find it in your diet and naturally can work this stuff into your diet so that you, you don't find yourself whining and have to take these supplements, of course, I think it's better. Okay. All right. And I didn't mean to interrupt you before, but you were also expanding some other foods that you could eat that have a lot of nutritional benefits. Yes, uh, almonds, for example, they they have tryptophan, and they also have magnesium, which also is a helpful sleep aid. Even whole wheat bread has tryptophan, or actually it helps release tryptophan uh, in in the body. So I think that there are a number of things that are very good. Of course, uh, you might like some herbal teas. Chamomile tea is very, very popular in, in terms of being a sleepy time tea. As a matter of fact, I think some brand names called them, are called sleepy time with regards uh, to chamomile tea, there's valerian root tea, catnip tea, all these teas. Catnip tea? Yeah, catnip tea. Uh, what, what happens if you eat catnip? I mean, doesn't that make the cats go absolutely crazy? Well, you, <laughs> yeah. Will you start scratching the, the furniture? <laughs> catnip tea. Well, for human, for if you were a cat, then yes, you would. But if for humans, it just makes you sleepy. Um, as far as other things that you can do to dramatically improve your health. What are some of the things that a person can do, let's say, to lose an influx of weight safely? There are people who say, okay, well, it's a new season or I'm going to you know, take the initiative to lose a considerable amount of weight. What are some of the safer ways you can do it or some of the things that you can do to quickly um, lose the weight? Well, number one is to actually pay attention to exactly what you're eating. I'll bet that if your listeners actually – got a pen and paper out or, or had a pad that carried they carried with it, them during the day and they wrote down every single thing that they ate, they would be very surprised at how much they ate over the course of the day. And so I think just being aware of how much you're eating is a big, big step in terms of getting a handle on how much you're eating and being able to control that amount. Also, you have to remember that if you're Eating out of your go- or if you're going to uh, a lot of fast food restaurants, you know these things are these meals that they have are packed with calories. They're usually way more in terms of portions than you actually need to maintain your weight, and so you're going to wind up gaining weight. If you if you ever saw the movie Supersize Me, where somebody yep. spent basically a, a I think a month, and the only thing they ate was 
food from one particular fast food fast food restaurant, well, they gained a lot of weight and they felt a lot less healthy and it was a physically noticeable change in these people. So uh, I think that that movie, if you look at Super Size Me, that movie, I think you'll really get a feel for what portions in fast food restaurants and the types of foods that you get, a lot of fried foods, of course, in fast food restaurants, and you're going to wind up gaining a great deal of weight. So I just think that being aware of your diet, that is such a big step with regards to that. Also, I think just being active. I mean, when I say being active, I don't think you, I'm not saying you need to run a marathon. I'm not saying that you have to join a gym and you have to spend every waking hour there. I mean, basically, just walk around the block, do things that are a little bit. I mean, take the stairs, do things that that test you just the tiniest bit, and do it during the day. Make it if you if you work on the third floor, walk up to the third floor. Walk down from the third floor instead of taking the elevator. If you do these things, you will find yourself at a somewhat higher level of activity that may actually make your body say, oh, hey, I'm actually doing more exercise, and I guess I better start getting some of my fat ready to convert into energy. In other words, speed up my metabolism. And the things that you do that make your body realize that you need, that it's going to need to provide energy quickly for you because you're a relatively active person, then the faster your metabolism will be and the more weight that you'll lose or health, uh, you'll, healthfully, that is. Okay. And I have to you know, regretfully bring some of your attention and the audience's attention, but I am a, uh, I'm, I'm st- I'm a stair racist. <laughs> I shun stairs everywhere I go. I always give them dirty looks. Is there any way to look at stairs in a very positive way? Can you visualize it? Should you visualize stairs as a way to, you know, every flight of stairs you go up, your your health, your heart's improving, your blood pressure is improving. Is that they really have that big of a impact? I, I it has. I think it has an an incredible impact. I think that think about some of the types of exercise that are considered to be some of the most aerobic, the stairmaster. Uh, from the back from the 90s when they had stairmasters, they they have all sorts of ellipticals now and other types that are uh, more ergonomic. But uh, there are a lot of really good benefits just simply from walking stairs or walking a slope, for example. Even if you were walking a, a walking a ramp. And the way I look at it when I go upstairs is basically I I look at it as um, as a milestone. And so I, I almost absentmindedly to myself, I almost count the stairs and, or, or if I'm going up, you know, let's say three or four, three or four stairs, I'm count on uh, floors of stairs. I'm counting, you know, each floor and, and it's a milestone. And, and I say, okay, that's an additional set of exercises that is equivalent to doing some reps at the local gym. Wow. All right. So that, that, see, that makes it better. I mean, I could look at stairs as a friend instead of just the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> I understand, though. No, it's good. No, in addition to talking about weight loss, we've often heard about water, that most people are, are dehydrated. And I'm kind of curious, um, 
because there are a lot of people that have a, uh, let's say, a very plump-sized figure. So you wonder, if the body is 70% water, how can these people who are very large possibly be dehydrated? How can you be dehydrated, especially if you are of big size? Well, people walk around naturally dehydrated. I mean, we spend very little time really thinking about, oh, how much water did I, did I drink today? And so I really see that. And you have to realize there's a difference between water and lipids. And lipids are, are fats. And, and our body has fats, has lipids in it, and it has and things that are soluble in water, water-soluble things. And so there's a big difference between fats, even though fats may have some liquid in it, and actual things that are, are water in our body. And we have so much... Probably, as you mentioned, I think 70% of our body is made of water. And the truth of the matter is, is that we don't get anywhere near the amount of fluids in our system that than, that we need to. I mean, we really need about a gallon of water a day. And very few people can, that's about eight glasses of water or so. And very few people can say they drank eight glasses of water. Now, luckily, you'll get some fluids from the the solid food that you eat. I mean, obviously, the solid food, just like you're partially made of water, so is your even the solid foods that you eat. And so you do get some fluids that way, but you don't get enough just plain water. And that's the thing. I think that people are, when they drink things, they wind up drinking sodas. They wind up drinking things that have a lot of sugar in them. And the sugar winds up being deposed uh, and if it's not being used as energy, it, can, it starts to get deposed as fat. And so that's a big issue. Okay. When it comes to water, too, I'm kind of curious to know about the types of quality of water. When people think they want to drink water, they drink the, the, they're going to drink the water out of the, the faucet. My understanding is that there's fluoride and maybe it may not be completely filtered. And then sometimes I go to these health food stores and they say, well, would you like to have some alkaline water? And I go, well, that looks pretty good, but it's $9 for a bottle of alkaline water. And I, I always wonder, what, because you write a word on it, I'm supposed to pay $9 for it? Is there any – is that just a sales pitch that's supposed to – is there any difference between water and if it's alkaline charge? Does that really make a difference in terms of the quality of water? Right. You know what? Somebody asked me that just a little while ago, and I really took a look at that. And between you and I, I am not sure that I really get the hard science behind this alkaline water thing. I think it's becoming a, a bit of a fad. Uh, but between you and I, I really don't think that you should don't don't spend the money just to drink just drink regular water. Filtered water is great, uh, but I don't think that you have to uh, get alkaline, ionically charged water. Uh, and, and expect a specific health benefit from it. Let's put it that way. I don't think it will hurt you. Okay. All right. And as far as a couple, I just want to go to a couple more questions about really improving your health, and then we're going to go through some of your books, which are absolutely fascinating. Uh, next question I have is when a person, um, let's say it this way, if a person is, is normally athletic or they're normally oversized, does that make a comparable difference between how much water they need to intake and also how much sleep they need to intake? Is a person's sleep record and, and, and the amount of water that a person intakes have to be compared different based on their body size and shape? I actually don't see sleep being different with regards to uh, whether you're a mesomorph or an endomorph. Uh, 
Uh, I think that that sleep is a a standard. I think it's it's a given. Everybody's a little different. Some people may do better with eight hours. Some people may do well with seven, maybe even a little less if you're an elderly. But uh, I think from the standpoint of hydration, I think that of course the bigger you are, the more fluids you need to maintain that structure. And so you may need, when we talk about what the average person needs to drink, for example, we're talking about uh, an adult, usually an adult, and this may be a little sexist, but usually talking about an adult male that weighs maybe 175 pounds. Now, if you are a big muscular dude, then, you know, you're going to need more fluids to maintain that body if that body is 220 pounds and you're, you know, you're six foot three and 220, then you, or 230, you're going to need a lot more fluids. Okay. And as far as working out, there are some people that will say, okay, well, you got to go to the gym four or five times and you got to do this much exercise. And then I've heard about something called high intense exercise where it's very short, where you get your heart rate elevated for just three or four minutes. And apparently you can get the same results as if you were working out for a prolonged period of time. What kind of exercise do you recommend for not only weight loss, but for general health or overall well-being? Does shorter work better? Does longer at lower heart rate work better, do you feel? Shorter and more intense is really great for people that want to... um, I would say bulk up or people who are going to be doing activities that involve their doing a a lot of high intensity stuff for a short period of time. So in other words, if I was going to run with the bulls in Spain, then I might want to, to do activities that will get me used to having a burst of acti- a burst of energy because I'm going to have to run like hell for a few minutes to get out of the way of the bulls. But the truth of the, the truth of the matter is is that really to stay healthy, the average person. You remember the average person has average joints, has average musculature, and <clears throat> has probably average stamina. Probably would do better by doing moderate exercise, probably 30 minutes at a time. Uh, would be great if they could, if they could do that and and do it on a regular basis you know four or five times a week would be awesome and I think they would find themselves at if they could do that and really commit to it and just that thirty minutes a day and not even every day you know four or five times a week that they really really commit to then I think that the average person would find themselves feeling a lot healthier because you want to know something? Very few people do that much now. And so for almost everybody in your audience, that unless you have a health unless you have a, a, a physical activity show of some sort, a sports show, the truth of the matter is is that the average person will actually probably double or triple their amount of physical activity over the course of the week if they just followed that guideline. Wow. And we're going to move into the next phase of our interview because we're talking about basically spring cleaning your health, and we're going to address one of the books that you've written, which is called The Survival Medicine Handbook, A Guide for When Help is Not on the Way. 
And in our society, we have this idea that uh, the stores are always going to be open. We can always walk to a store to buy food, and there's always going to be a doctor. But if you look at humanity from a greater, much greater perspective, it goes through some tumultuous times, and there may be some event where we have a grid go, go down or we don't have these resources available. And getting to that point, Dr. Alton, if you reach that point where a doctor is not readily available, what are some of the three or four basic medical trainings that each person should know of that you feel? Well, I think that, you know what, we really can't get through, it seems to me, a week without reading about the latest bombings, the latest active shooter, either some terrorist event or just somebody that's deranged, disgruntled. And I've recently come to the realization or at least to the belief that we need to really know how to deal with some traumatic issues. We need to know how to deal with not only what we were just talking about sports, of course you need to know how to deal with sprains and strains, but the truth of the matter is that I think that we're going to have to in this in this society, at least as from what I see coming up in the next few years, we're going to have to learn how to deal with bleeding wounds. We're going to have to learn the whole gamut with regards to first aid because it's, I just see more and more people winding up being involved in some kind of event, untoward event in which they may be exposed to somebody or or be involved in a situation where somebody may be seriously injured. And I'm almost at the point where I think that we need to change the three R's for reading, writing, and arithmetic to reading, writing, and reduce hemorrhage because I, I oh, see, wow. I, you know what, I look at these, I look at what's happening in, in the world. I'm, I'm seeing things happening in malls. I'm seeing things happening in the street. I'm seeing things happening in, in concerts in Paris, for example, and in holiday parties at workplaces in San Bernardino. And I'm saying to myself, what if we put a medical kit next to the fire extinguisher, something that had, let's say, a tourniquet, something easy to, to, to wrap around a, a bleeding wound, uh, bandages, blood clotting agents. They're actually powders and gauzes that actually clot blood that all you have to do is apply them there and apply pressure there for two or three minutes and the bleeding stops even if it's coming from an artery. These things do exist. And if we had those kinds of materials and if we trained, for example, our kids somewhere in their school years how to deal with injuries and how to deal with first aid like they do in the Boy Scouts. When the Boy Scouts, they teach them how to deal with these things. Not very few people are involved with the Boy Scouts these days or the Girl Scouts these days. So if we could actually include that in a course curriculum, if we could start putting medical kits by the fire extinguishers, of course, people are going to say, my gosh, you know, that's overkill. I I don't know what I would what I would do if I saw a, a medical kit in, that said in case of emergency break, break glass. Well, I mean, what do you do when you're seeing a fire extinguisher now? I mean, does it give you the heebie-jeebies to see a fire extinguisher on the wall? I mean, the truth of the matter is we're in a new normal, and the new normal is forcing us to rethink some of the things that we have before. We're not as secure as we were before. We have to be prepared 
to save lives. And the truth of the matter is, is that how many lives would we have to save to make teaching first aid in school worthwhile? I mean, how much, how much is the life worth? And the truth of the matter is it wouldn't take very much for me to, to want my kids to have some exposure to learning how to deal with injuries and and other issues that they may encounter in emergencies. And and it doesn't have to be a terrorist attack. You know, the likelihood you'll be involved in terrorist in a terrorist attack is very small. But you could be in a witness to a car crash. You could be involved in just a, a number of different things. You could be on a hike and somebody get injured. And all of this stuff, if you have learned it during your school years, there are lives that will be saved. All right. Do you think that because you have so many people in the country that are unskilled, that maybe live a sedentary lifestyle, that are not getting the nutrients that they maybe they once were from food because of the influx of the GMOs, do you think that the malnutrition or misappropriation of nutrients that are getting into a person's body is actually exacerbating um, insanity? or psychosis or impulsive-type behavior, and that maybe we're not as in control as, as we once were? I think that there are a lot of factors that are involved with it. I think that uh, everything everything from uh, a very, in, very ineffective diet on the part of almost everyone that really doesn't pay attention to it, so few people really do, Everything from that to the geopolitical climate uh, is a factor in, in what's going on today. But what I'm seeing doesn't make me more confident. I mean, the, in, if you look at, at surveys, people that are considering uh, that consider a rosy outlook for the future seem to be less and less. If you if you look at the percentages in, in surveys that are done, a lot of people think that the future isn't something that's going to be as awesome as maybe, you know, people in the 80s, if they look forward. Yeah, these were great. You didn't have, everyone didn't have a cell phone. And right. There was, in the 80s, there was always that, oh, you know, the, the, every school, every class had, had a fat kid. Now it's like every class has, oh, there's that skinny kid. And it's, you know, it's. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> things are, things have changed. We are in oh, that's that's why I use that that term, the new normal, a lot. I mean, the truth of the matter is, is that if somebody from the 80s, if they were in a time warp or something like that, and they found themselves in 2016, they there are a lot that they there's a lot that they would not recognize. And the truth of the matter is, is that I think they would feel pretty uneasy if they just sat down and looked at the news on TV. So now. On our show, we have talked extensively about the possibility of an economic collapse. I mean, this is something that we, we've talked so much way, shape, or form. Do you think that's something that uh, you're, you're preparing for? Do you think that's something that people should prepare for? And if so, what do you think would be some of the key items to stock up on uh, if there is going to be you know, dramatic uh, reduction or dramatic economic collapse? Well, I'll tell you. I think that what we're experiencing is a sort of a slow downward spiral. And if you look at us from a few years ago, I think the average person I've read that the average person 
uh, makes less now than they did a few years ago, or there has been sort of a stalling of people's incomes and they're not progressing, they're not making more money. And so I think we're, I think what we're going to experience right, at least right now, we're not, we may not experience a economic collapse in that one day things are great and the next day, you know, everything crashes. That probably won't happen, but there, I think, is a slow circling the drain that we may be experiencing. We may be in the middle of it right now. And so it makes sense to have insurance against what might happen in the future. And so let's say you have, okay, let's say you have health insurance, right? You, don't, you have health insurance, but you don't want to get sick. You have life insurance, but you don't want to die. You have car insurance, but you don't want to get in an accident. So what you should look at is putting together maybe a supply a supply of some food, some medical supplies, a good, a good medical first aid kit. Um, maybe you might consider having some way to defend yourself, and you know that the way that you go uh, with that will depend really on your personal beliefs. But consider it not out of desperation and fear. Just simply consider it another form of insurance. You're not going to want to have an economic collapse occur or some other post-apocalypse, some other zombie apocalypse happen, but you would like to feel confident in the fact that you could weather a period of time in which things may not be so good by having some of the tangible things. I mean, with the other kinds of insurance that I mentioned, you've got a document, you've got a piece of paper, or you've got something online. But here you've got some tangible items, you have food, you have medical supplies, you have things like that, that actually would give you confidence going forward if times get bad. Okay, and this question is going to make people who are listening really shake their heads, and I can imagine so. Okay. There's this old saying that says a doctor, sorry, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Are doctors (laughs) phobia? Are they are they fearing apples? And (laughs) what do apples really do that that uh, keeps doctors away? Do they really have that much health benefits, or do they just have some kind of energy about them? Where doctors like, oh my goodness, I don't like apples. No, the truth of the matter is, it was actually an ingenious marketing ploy by an uh, an apple farmer. Uh, from the, from I think Washington, uh, from many years ago, that he coined that phrase, and it was meant to sell apples. Having said that, I love apples. <laughs> <laughs> I love apples. <laughs> so yeah, the the truth of the matter is, there's a, there's a lot of stuff that maybe diet, you know, diet advice, but actually starts has ulterior, an ulterior motive associated with it and you know if people want you desperately to be taking some kind of uh, supplement or if some people want you to be desperately eating a one one particular food i mean they may have they, best, they may have a vested interest in that particular item i mean eat a balanced diet and, and that's the thing to get the most antioxidants you need a variety of di- a variety of stuff because there's 
there's lipid soluble antioxidants, there's water soluble antioxidants, and you can't get all of the antioxidants simply by eating one food. You've got to have a balanced diet. Okay. And I only have a couple uh, more questions. And one of the questions is, if your brain is the quarterback for your body and uh, you know, makes everything run, kind of calls all the shots, what are three things that you can do to optimize your brain which in turn could optimize the rest of your body. How do you make your brain run faster or better? You make, you make your brain run faster by using it. And basically, okay. when I say using it, I mean exercising your brain is almost as important as exercising your body. I mean, the truth of the matter is, is that very few people really spend time thinking about things and reading and doing things like, Crossword puzzles, things that make your mind nimble and make you think about things in slightly different ways. Sometimes to get a clue on a crossword puzzle, you need to think outside the box a little bit. There are very few people that do that. Many people, what they do is they very simply get home from work, sit themselves down before the computer and get on Facebook or social media and start, you know, tweeting away or, or you know, just... Um, posting on their on their Facebook page, or just or sit in front of a TV, for example, and just watch their shows, uh, or listen to their tunes. The truth of the matter is, is that that's not doing much to stimulate your brain. You absolutely need to think about what's going on, and you know the quarterback needs to know more than just a few plays. He needs to have some plays that are out of the box that'll fool the defense. So the truth of the matter is exercise that brain by stimulating it. That is one thing that is so important. Of course, you mentioned sleep is another thing that's very important. Your brain can take in much more information if you have had a good night, a good night's sleep. That's something that is super important. And, of course, you want to make absolutely sure that you again I, I why do I keep going back to this balanced diet thing? The truth of the matter is is that your diet is is so important and it's so important not only for your body, it's very important for your brain as well. So the truth of the matter is is exercise your brain, get sleep. So, you know, just like your brain needs exercise, your brain needs rest and also it needs a good diet. It needs just like your body needs a good diet, your brain needs a good diet. And last question I have for you, Dr. Alton, is of all the books that you've written, actually, let me say it, I'm going to do a countdown, three, two, one. Dr. Alton, of all of your years as a doctor, what would you say would be the number one piece of advice that you could offer someone, uh, not only about losing weight, but about their health? What is the most important thing that you, you could tell someone I would think that my, I think the most important thing is to take charge of your health. I mean, the truth of the matter is, is if you're living a sedentary lifestyle that's caused you to gain weight or caused you to basically just be sitting there like a, a bump on a log watching TV or, or just in front of your computer, get out there, man. Get out there and take charge of your life. 
be active, meet people, do things, think about things, read a book that actually, you know, stimulates you. Those are things that are very important. When you go to the doctor, ask them questions. Don't just say, you know, the doctor says, oh, here, take this pill. Don't just take it, put it in your purse or put it in your pocket and say, okay, see you. When do I see you next? The truth of the matter is you have to ask some questions. Doctor, why am I taking this medicine? What are its possible side effects? What are its benefits? What is it going to do for me that other things, just diet and exercise and lifestyle, wouldn't do for wouldn't do for me? Is there another way? Are there natural ways that I can deal with this issue rather than taking this pill? Ask these questions. Take charge of your life from a health standpoint and from every other standpoint too. Many people are just willing to be led along by with a with a ring in their nose being led led with a with a rope and the truth of the matter is is that each one of us has a god-given ability to make decisions for ourselves. So pay attention to that and take advantage of what God gave you. Use your mind and use your free will. Dr. Joe Alton, I wish you were my doctor, and I want to let everyone know. Thank you so much for being with us today. And you can learn more about Dr. Alton by going to his website at tombandbloom.net. You can also buy his books on Amazon. Again, I can't emphasize to the audience that I bought the book, The Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Handbook. Love it. I have it on the shelf, and it is a really great point of reference. Again, another book that you have is The Survival Medicine Handbook, A Guide for When Help is Not on the Way. Anyone out there that is interested in improving their health or especially doing any kind of prep work or preparing for a disaster, Dr. Joe, some wonderful books. So, Dr. Alton, thank you so much for being with us today. really appreciate it. A pleasure. Joining us now is Dr. Carl Robinson. He is author of the book, Small Doses, Big Results, How Homeopathic Medicine Offers Hope in Chronic Disease. It's a great book. Dr. Robinson, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Got it. Can you please explain to our audience what is homeopathic medicine? Certainly. Um, it was put together or invented by Samuel Hahnemann in uh, about 1790 and uh, started to rapidly spread throughout Europe and then over to India and then finally over to the United States in about the 1840s. And it's it's based on uh, several unusual principles, and um, the medicines we use are quite unusual. They actually come from plants, they come from minerals, salts, and they come from animal products. But this is not herbal medicine per se. We start with an herbal medicine like a tincture, and then we begin to dilute it, and we dilute it many times, and each time that it's diluted, it's shaken or what we call succussed, either by hand against a thick book or by a machine. And each time it's diluted, it's succussed. So it becomes, as it becomes more and more diluted, strangely enough, it seems to become more and more therapeutic, therapeutically powerful. And so we use medicines which are so diluted that they actually, when they're analyzed, there's no 
no molecules found. It's some sort of energetic configuration of the uh, of the uh, water molecules that originated with this first uh, with the tincture. Okay. So it's so uh, is it? It's very very different from uh, me- regular medicine, which is measurable. So you're saying that this type of medicine is it mainly driven by the power of belief or the belief that the medicine will actually work? Is that the driving force of the molecular structure of what makes this medicine work as opposed to the chemical compounds? No, it's not driven by belief. No, it's uh, it's um, what what we have after it's after it's made up. It seems to react quite powerfully with uh, some subtler subtle aspect of the person, and uh, this medicine can actually cause quite an upheaval in people and uh, restore people to. Uh, illness, uh, restore people to health uh, in a way that uh, regular medicine really can't do very well. Another thing, another thing is that when, when we find a medicine which, is, which matches well the person, uh, it will cover not only the, the, their main complaint, but also other, other symptoms and complaints that they may have. And I can give you examples of that if you wish. Yes. Uh, so, but first we should go back a little bit. The the principle behind homeopathy is that uh, the medicine that we select corresponds in an almost exact way, like a hand to a glove, to the sick person and the sick person's symptoms. So that's what homeo means. It means the same as pathy from the Greek pathos means disease. And this medicine that we select corresponds, the symptoms that it's known to produce in a healthy person correspond to the symptoms of the sick person. So that's what the idea is that like cures like. So, for example, if we give belladonna, which is a well-known herb and is used in regular medicine, when you give belladonna to a healthy person, some of the symptoms that are produced are as follows. It causes the blood to surge up into the head and face, causing the the face to become bright red and hot and with the arteries in the neck throbbing and pulsating. At the same time, the hands and feet are cool. So when this happens in a child, say, who's got a fever, the fever will be accompanied with this red face, hot face, throbbing carotid arteries, dilated pupils. And it won't really matter what the underlying pathology is. It could be an otitis media ear infection. It could be a headache. It could be a nondescript fever. Uh, It could be something even quite serious. But when when the patient has those symptoms, belladonna will act to remove them and help the person go on to a cure. Okay. Are there any types of, let's say, common oils or uh, common medicines that you think, I would call them, I would call it like miracles that can be applied to multiple things? Are there, are there anything that you can think of off the top of your head that would could be applied universally to many 
Allen's? Well, one of the most famous homeopathic medicine is Arnica, A-R-N-I-C-A, Arnica, Montana, and that's that affects the capillaries. And it's the most useful medicine for all kinds of sports injuries or any other kind of trauma in which bruising occurs or in which a shock occurs, something like that. So it's very useful in sports injuries, and it's useful every time, virtually any time a person has a motor vehicle accident. And one of the, um, it'll reduce the swelling and the pain often within hours. And another thing which which is you'll find interesting is that people who are in a arnica state, we speak of a, these medicines have various metal states associated with them, People who need arnica will often say, "I'm okay. Don't I don't need to go to the doctor. You don't need to take me into the uh, emergency room. I'm okay." Even though they're in shock and uh, they've been badly injured, but they they frequently say that it's quite it's quite amusing actually. What about uh, somebody, anyone out there who's trying to lose weight? Are there any things that you'd recommend that they take that are natural that you know make it more natural or accelerate the process, accelerate your metabolism? No, there's, I don't. I wouldn't say there's any surefire homeopathic medicines for weight loss. Okay. There's a couple you know that, that people say work, but I haven't found them to work. One of the things I really enjoyed about um, your book is you talk about uh, there's a homeopathic treatments for people who have post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. And that um, how would you treat post-traumatic stress disorder with homeopathic medicine? Well, <clears throat> we 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 take the Take the case history, and uh, often these person, these people are they're going to be in, in in several different states. In one state, they uh, they may be sort of somnolent. They might be in a kind of spaced out, sleepy state with their pupils dilated and sort of indifferent to everything. Um, in this kind of a shock state, they don't care about anything, and uh, their their sleep is very deep, and they, it's always associated with snoring. Their face tends to be a bit red and hot. Uh, this is a state of opium, the narcotic opium, but again, it's been prepared homeopathically, so there's no molecules of the opium that can be detected, just the vibration of it. But when a person's in that state, opium will often help them to come out of it and start resuming, um, you know, a more normal life. Another one is a medicine called aconite, A-C-O-N-I-T-E. And in that case, there's been usually one or many, maybe many, many frights, such as what happens on the battlefield. People are are exposed to uh, horrible wounds and explosions and people dying and um, it's very very frightening and fear is I believe in my opinion anyway is at the base of post-traumatic stress disorder and repeated fear eventually overcomes the mind and they go into this they start to de- uh, decompensate so aconite would be a very, very important medicine there. Another one might even be arnica, which I've already mentioned. And then there's there's others. There's other Stramonium is another one which is important. But we have, uh, 
depending how the person is reacting to this stress, uh, and post-traumatic stress disorder is not limited to battlefield injuries, battlefield uh, trauma, but it also occurs in motor vehicle accidents. It occurs when uh, people are badly abused uh, in whatever kind of relationship they're in, or maybe they grow up in a bed in a in a in an atmosphere where there's a lot of terror going on. We hear all the time about young girls who are afraid of their father coming in at night drunk and what he's going to do to them, and that's repeated and repeated, and that causes a terrible sense of uh, of fear and, and trembling, and that can also lead to post-traumatic stress disorder. So it comes in, in various guises. It can occur... Uh, after a rape, it can occur after any sort of a accident. It goes on and on. Well, one of the things that sometimes people experience states of post-traumatic stress or they can be triggered through a body memory or um, any type of other external stimuli that induces a trigger, is there anything that can be done to minimize or diffuse a trigger through homeopathic medicine? Yes, all those medicines I mentioned. Uh, you, you mentioned an important thing. The actual cells seem to contain a memory. Uh, we we postulate that, and it's probably true that these billions and perhaps trillions of cells, uh, each one has a certain kind of intelligence, and they get traumatized, and uh, it spreads cell to cell over the whole body. And, you know, with regular conventional medicine, it's it's very, very difficult to treat that. I mean, they can treat them with antidepressants, antipsychotics, things like that. But what we want is to start to erase these painful memories, uh, literally try to bring the body back into a state of balance where they can uh, start functioning again. This post-traumatic stress disorder occurs in natural catastrophes also, like in Haiti, hurricanes, uh, earthquakes, floods, uh, on and on. And all kinds of natural disasters can can produce extreme fright and fear, which ends up in some form of post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. And we have post-traumatic stress disorder. Is that putting an emotional imprint on every cell in your body? And is every cell in your body going to correspond to the stress as if the cell itself were being attacked, or the cell itself were being under some type of duress? Based, on I think so. I think I think you've you've described it fairly well. Of course, it's a theory because you can't sort of analyze the intelligence of a cell. But the cells get traumatized, as you said, and uh, it's uh, this is the wonder of homeopathic medicine is that we can come in and actually start to uh, restore some of these people and start to. You know, their nightmares will begin to end. And, uh, you know, they'll start to take an interest in their normal daily activities. This is all signs of a cure. Uh, when your your energy, the energy of the whole body has to has to go away, they have to brighten up. The, the fear and the depression and the anxiety has to start diminishing. And they have to become interested in life. Uh, very important to become... Whenever a person's really getting better, they they take a greater interest in their daily activities, whatever they are, and you want to always look for that in a in when people are under treatment. Can GMOs 
cause organs in our body and cells in our body to have a post-traumatic stress because of the disproportionate amount of like sugar and other nutrients or other toxins that come within those foods. While we're eating this cheeseburger from McDonald's, it tastes great. We don't realize it, but our body could be having a five-alarm fire. We would not know about that. So is post-traumatic stress disorder only limited to the consciousness of the person, or can it actually be occurring in the organs and the blood cells? Well, I don't know if I'd call that post-traumatic stress. What that, That's a case of... Uh, they're starting to alter the they're altering the genes in the food and that food gets assimilated by the person who eats the food and then presumably some of the some of our genetic material gets gets modified and we don't know really what the all the effects are going to be because they these these modified foods have only been around uh, 10 or 20 years and they're of course they're growing in frequency but i look on it as a kind of genetic modification or epigenetic modification or even a poisoning, I don't think I don't think they're going to be they're doing any good whatsoever to to people, and I'm I'm mortified by the whole thing. Uh, a GMOs? Do you think that's? Yeah, I, I'm it, totally appalled by it. But what are you going to do? Well, what types of food? Actually, let me say it this way: What types of food and supplements, or do you recommend people eat? that whether they realize it or not are going to have a profound positive impact on a person's health and help them really you know, restore their body to optimal health. Well, yeah. What I can tell you is nothing new, and this, has got, this is not homeopathy, but it's very important to eat uh, as many, uh, you know, organically grown, if you can afford it, vegetables and fruits and uh, and and really high-grade protein, meats and, and chicken and fish, things like that, nuts. Uh, and then, you know, try to get to be able to breathe good, uncontaminated air and to exercise. This is the stuff that everybody knows about. But um, it's, it can't be repeated too often. The first thing, really, in any health program is diet. Without, a, without question, if a person's eating all kinds of sugar all the time and and horribly uh, fried foods and all junk food. I mean, they don't—they're they're behind the eight ball before they even get started. I'm kind of curious. You've been a doctor, and you—you you observe, especially what's happening in the United States. I actually just read a report tonight that said it was not—it was China, but the U.S. has the most amount of super fat people in the entire world, and you know, I'm kind of curious as a doctor, do you find it amazing that? There are so many people that could be so fat that could still be walking around and not have more health ailments. And if things continue, where do you see not only America but the rest of the world going as far as uh, health ailments in the future? Do you think that we're going to have a, a tidal wave of new diseases that we probably would have never anticipated 100 years ago? Well, that's a very good observation. It's not only America. I travel a lot in Central America, and every time I go down, every year they seem to get be getting fatter down there. So this is a world, as you said, it's a worldwide phenomenon. Maybe not so much in Asia. I don't know about that. But uh, in much of the uh, the first world, yeah, there's lots of obesity going on. And it, the tidal wave is already here. We're already in the midst of a tremendous <laughs> diabetes epidemic. It's already here. No question about it, and it's going to just going to get worse. So, 
okay. it's you know, and then hypertension and stroke and heart disease and all that follows. Well, so let's can we talk about the stroke and hypertension. What can you do? What can some of the things a person can do tonight to start to enhance their heart health? Can they? What can they do to um, you know? foods they can eat or activities they can do to begin to really heal their hearts? Well, the first thing, as I said, is diet mm-hmm. and uh, and in certain certain vitamins and minerals are useful. Uh, what's it called? Co- coenzyme Q is useful. There's many. Uh, there's homeopathic medicines that are that directly affect the heart. But I wouldn't take them necessarily unless you're under the care of a homeopath. Um, and it's the it's the it's the same story. You have to lose weight, exercise more, and uh, and stop sugars. Sugar is the main killer for sure. Refined is it sugar. the me- refined sugar? So is that the fake sugar that they've put in all, all the sugars, sodas? All sugars, including honey, they're all they're all bad, bad, bad. Soft. Even uh, everything with sugar. Everything with sugar is bad. Yeah. Is it is it was sugar this accessible 100 years ago or is this something that's recent? Is sugar what's the reason why you think there's so much sugar out there? Is it is it because of its addictive properties? Well, it's because everybody's eating it. It's uh it, it used to I mean, if you go back and and look at the the amount of intake of sugar 100 years ago it was uh I don't know, if so many not very many pounds per person per year and now it's like 80, 90, 100 pounds of sugar a year. I don't, I don't remember right the figures, along. but it's huge. It's a huge amount, and uh, it was never consumed in this quantity before. And it's found in everything. The processed foods are, are, along with everything else, very much to blame. It's always best to eat whole foods uh, organically grown. But I'm sure you, know, you and your listeners have been over this 100 times. So actually, we, we we're really getting into it now. Where we're exploring this right now. This is the first time we've really discussed homeopathic medicine. And one thing I really enjoyed that another part about your book is you say that chronic disease lasts; that it never was it never really goes away. Why is that? Why is it so? And what is the difference between homeopathic medicine and conventional medicine when it comes to dealing with diseases in the long term? All right. Uh, Regular medicine or conventional medicine, we call it allopathy or allopathic medicine, is concerned with addressing a series of symptoms or a series of problems. So, for example, if you have high blood pressure, you get an anti-hypertensive. If you've got high blood sugar, you get an anti-glycemic something designed to bring down the blood sugar. If you've got chronic headaches, you take pain medicine. Uh, If you've got constipation, you take laxatives. And if you've got a skin rash, you take a cortisone cream to reduce the, the itching and swelling and pain. So this is what i these these that i've mentioned are are fairly common and so in one person they may be taking 3 5 7 9 different uh, allopathic medicines all designed to keep under control each of these problems each of these symptoms so it's a kind of a 
patchwork system. And if you stop these medicines, the symptoms are going to reemerge. They're going to swim up to the surface and start bothering you again. So you're kind of on these for life unless you make some drastic changes in your life, such as we've already mentioned about diet and exercise. Mm -hmm. But the same problem, the series of problems, would be addressed by one homeopathic medicine. Let me give you an example. Let's say a woman in her 40s or 50s comes in and says, I've got these migraine headaches. And I say to her, when did they begin? And she says, they began 11 years ago or whenever. And I said, well, what was going on in your life so many years ago? And suddenly she tears up and she says, my son was killed in Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever. And then shortly after that happened, these headaches began. So now we know that the headaches are causally related to this grief, this terrible grief, which, because she's still crying about it, is unresolved. So really, she comes in for the headaches, but the cause is the grief of her son who, who's dead. So in order to really cure the headaches, we've got to also cure the grief. And in the process of this long interview, I usually take an hour and a half with new patients, we find out that these headaches are extremely sensitive to the sun. 10, 20 minutes in the sun will bring on a headache. We find out that she craves salt, table salt, ordinary salt. And we find out that she's kind of a, puts up a tough front and doesn't want people to console her, to pity her, to put an arm around her and pat her. So with all these symptoms, this points to a medicine called natrum muriaticum, which is Latin for common salt, sodium chloride. And when that medicine is prepared homeopathically, it will address this chronic grief, the migraine headaches, and it, even the salt the salt craving, strangely enough. So when I see her again four to six weeks later, uh, the headaches will be many, many more few, uh, many fewer, and they won't last as long, and they won't be as severe. And eventually, they'll go away completely. And also, the grief will have diminished and become more of a of a distant memory. Dr. Robinson, I have to admit something to you and, and our listeners that. Um I was must have been about two months ago. I was in a lot of pain, and I did not want to take ibuprofen or any of the other, you know, Tylenols. I really didn't want to do it. And I was looking for a, a you know a holistic way of stopping a headache. And one of the things I looked up was to take some cayenne pepper, put it on a Q-tip, and have a little cayenne pepper in your nose, and it said it was going to stop the headache. Well, I did, and it worked. For about 10 seconds, and then my face was on fire from the cayenne pepper. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's like, you know, the trial and error right there. For somebody who has a, a headache, and somebody who, I guess, is relatively happy, what's the most basic recommend, recommended way you feel is to stop having a headache? You mean to stop an acute headache? 
Yeah, stop it. Well, again, again, you know, each one's each one's different. That's the thing about homeopathic medicine, as I'm as I've been hinting at right along. It's individualized. So with one person, the headache might be behind the eyes. Another person, it might be on the right side of the head. Another one on the left side of the head. Another one on the back of the head. So all that starts calling for different homeopathic medicines. It's not so simple. So there's no something. There's not one or two medicines you can just go to the whole food store and. Uh, pick up and expect your headaches to go away. I'm sorry, but it's it's more complicated than that. Okay. Dr. Carl Robinson, author of Small Doses, Big Results, How Homeopathic Medicine Offers Hope and Chronic Disease. I want to thank you so much for being with us. Is there a website where people can learn more about you? Yes, it's called homeopathyyes.com. Thank you so much. Okay, everyone, that concludes today's edition of the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Special thanks to our great guest, Dr. Elena George, Dr. Joe Alton, Dr. Carl Robinson, and as always, thank you to our virtues, Miss Carrie O'Connor, Miss Laura Lynn, Miss Lisa Caza, and Miss Constance Stellas. To learn more about the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show, please visit our website at OuterLimitsRadio.com. Till the next time we meet, my friends, wishing upon you an abundance of peace, love, and beers. Take good care, and thank you so, so much for listening. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming, and I'm loud. Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything!